That is a song I have loved ever since I was a kid. My uncle Jim Stoutenborough, my mother's brother, was a song leader. He led the singing for Bill Rice, the founder of the Bill Rice Ranch. And he was a very unusual song leader. And uh, he, would, uh, he would yell. <laughs> and uh, he would jump. And he would scare people half to death. But by, by about the middle of the song, everybody was singing their lungs out. And uh, I remember when we would sing that song, boy, he'd, he had certain motions. His hands would go up in the air and he'd jump three feet high and all sorts of things. And we were singing, Lord, send the old time power. And uh, you'd be moved and stirred. It's a, it's a great truth. You know, as we come into the session, I think of the words of Pastor James Dennis. He spoke uh, for us at Castle Welland in the 2009 conference up there. And I remember one time we were talking and he said, John, when I get to heaven, he said, you know, one of the greatest regrets I think I'm going to have is when I find out all that was available that I did not take advantage of. Now, keep that thought in mind as we move into this subject this morning. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is a subject that is battered around in our day. It is controversial, unfortunately. It doesn't need to be, I don't think. Uh, But it has become that. And when things get controversial, sometimes there becomes a fear uh, about it that scares people away. You know, Satan is a master at using fear to keep us from that which he knows would equip us to threaten his, what he thinks is his turf. And he doesn't want God's people to understand, know, access, and experience the power of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to tell you, when we get to heaven, if we did not access this, we will regret it. And it's a wonderful truth. I remember when I was... uh, Uh, an assistant pastor to my father in Chicago. I came on staff in 1987. And I'd finished uh, uh, graduate school. And uh, so, uh, you know, you had some training under your belt. And then uh, dad said, it's time for you to get ordained. Well, uh, he tried to prep me and get everything ready. And, you know, you got to write a doctrinal statement. And uh, uh, when uh, you're all ready to go, dad uh, invited a bunch of preachers to come in. And they have what they call an ordination council. And the purpose of that is to examine the candidate to see whether or not you're sound on the faith. So uh, they read your... uh, well, your doctrinal statement, you give a copy to all of them, and, and section by section, they read it, and then they ask questions. And if they think you're sound in the faith, then they recommend to the church to go ahead and ordain you. Well, we were in the middle of that, everything was going fine. Until. <laughs> Someone asked this question. John, what is your understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm named after John R. Rice. Evangelist John R. Rice, he started an organization in the States years ago called the Sword of the Lord. Uh, it still continues. They have a paper. They have conferences and so on. John Rice died in 1980. Uh, um, so this is eight, 1987, seven years after he died. Uh, but John Rice taught much on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I had studied him. And uh, he would be in the vein of D.L. Moody and R.A. Torrey, and all three of them taught that there was a power available, and their wording for it was the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that you were to seek God for this baptism. So I answered in that vein. And there was no small stir among the brethren. (laughs) And the next thing you know, man, these guys are going at it and I'm watching. (laughs) And uh, finally the moderator uh, leans back. He takes his glasses off and he leans back on the chair. And I'm standing at the little podium trying to act dignified and everything. And uh, he said, John, what we're trying to tell you is there's not a man in this room who agrees with what you just said. (laughs) Well, that was the understanding back in the day of D.L. Moody, R.A. Torrey, and John Rice. By 1987, in recent decades in the United States, the textbook definition of the baptism was not that it was something out there that you were to seek, that you got it all when you got saved and it's a done deal, you don't have to seek anything, you already got it. Now, which one's right? (laughs) Is it something you already got, therefore don't have to seek? Or is there a seeking that accesses a blessing? (laughs) 
And I think we're going to see this morning from the word of God, the answer is yes. (laughs) It's not an either or. (laughs) It's a both and. And I trust the Lord will make that clear to our hearts. Now, uh, this morning I want to give you the highlights of this. If we got into the details, we'd never get done. And probably you'd be sleeping. Uh, if you want the details, the, 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 the tedious details. And the reason there's a place for that is when you have this kind of controversy, <laughs> you have to get tediously detailed uh, to tie truth to the text and all of that. I have written a book called The Revived Life. Uh, CLC Publications published it. It is available on Kindle. And the last chapter, chapter 8, gives you the details. I am not going to do that this morning. I'm going to give you the highlights and uh, if you are the kind that says prove that, prove that, prove that, then it is in the book. I trust in that fashion. But let's look at our text this morning. Uh, Galatians chapter 3. This is a tremendous text of scripture that uh, really gives us the the gamut of what uh, we're dealing with this morning. Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 and 27. The inspired word of God says, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Amazing text of scripture. I do want to speak this morning on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask the Holy Spirit, shall we, to be our teacher this morning, make this profitable Give us understanding. Convince us of truth so that we respond in genuine faith. Blessed Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the convincer. That you are the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation. And I pray that you'd reveal Christ to us today. That you would take what is of Christ and show him unto us. And in so doing, open our eyes to what you mean By the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord today. Breathe on us. Lord Jesus I pray. That there would be such an understanding. That we would respond. Gladly in faith. Not just today. But for the rest of our lives. I do plead your blood. To protect us from the attack of the evil one. Who has sought to confuse this issue. And keep God's people from. The provision and blessing. That we so desperately need. And so Lord Jesus. I claim our position in you. At the throne far above the enemy. And in your name through your blood. I exercise your authority over the powers of darkness. That would seek to hinder this morning. And trust you that that not be allowed. Oh Lord I pray. Use truth to liberate and set free. Make it clear. Make it plain, I pray. Make it simple to our hearts. We trust you to do that work. And Lord, to meet with us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The most powerful distinction from the world possible for God's people is the recognizable sense of the presence of God on the people of God. And that recognizable sense of God's presence on God's people comes when God's people know experientially the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I remember reading Duncan Campbell's biography back in the late 90s. At that point, I'd already become aware of the Lewis revival and what God had done 60 years ago there on that little island and uh, shaking that place and village by village, church by uh, church, uh, the revival spreading. And uh, reading the story of Duncan Campbell was fascinating because there was a lot that God did to prepare him for that revival. Years before, he uh, uh, had grown up in a home there in the highlands of Scotland Uh, That would have been uh, religious, and yet he did not know the Lord. And then there were some pilgrims, as they called them, that uh, were trained under John George Govan from the Faith Mission of Edinburgh uh, that had come to their town. And uh, this was in Oban, uh, uh, Scotland. And uh, uh, they uh, uh, had services that were held in a garage. And in those services, Duncan Campbell's parents came to know the Lord. They were born again. They were saved. But not Duncan Campbell, not yet. And uh, he went on and uh, became uh, quite proficient in bagpipe playing. And uh, so in uh, his uh, 
uh, early 20s, uh, he would uh, travel to various parts of Scotland and he would play in dance halls and he was quite good. And on one occasion he had come back to his area. His parents didn't know that he was there, but he was actually in his uh, uh, town there of Oban. And I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but at any rate, uh, sorry for that, uh, Christine. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, he was back there and he was playing in, uh, uh, in that hall. He was playing the bagpipes uh, and uh, they were having their dance and he was in the raucous and ruckus of it all. And as he was playing, uh, this can happen to musicians when their fingers are moving and they're doing their thing and their mind can be somewhere else. (laughs) And his mind drifted off to a hill called Calvary. (laughs) And he began to consider Christ on the cross. He heard all that in his youth, though he did not yet know the saving power of Jesus. And so powerful was this impression that when he finished the song, he stopped playing and he left. He walked toward his home that he grew up in. And a fair walk uh, uh, distance. On the way, there was a little building that uh, he had gone to Sunday school in as a little boy. Now it was late at night. I've been by the little building. And, and uh, as he walked home that night, he saw that the light was on. And he thought that was strange, it's late. And so he went by and he, he opened the door and uh, trying to uh, see what was going on. And he heard some men. And he heard his father's voice. And his father was praying for him. <laughs> that he would come to know the Lord. Oh, he was moved as he heard that. He quietly shut the door. And uh, he took the, the walk now down this very small lane. I've, I've, I've gone down that very lane. As he uh, made his way to his own house where he'd grown up. When he got there, now very late, the light was on. His mother was up. <laughs> and she was praying. For him. (laughs) That he would come to know the Lord. And he recognized that God was working. God was speaking. And he poured his heart out to his mother. And she said well why don't you go out. And tell God what you told me. And he went outside the house there. I've been to the very spot. And he got on his knees. And he confessed his wickedness as a sinner before a holy God. But understanding that Jesus saves. He cast his dependence on Jesus to save him. That was regeneration. That was new birth. That was salvation. That was justification. And he began to grow in the Lord, got excited for God, and became a witness. And uh, uh, he would go around the town, and he would talk to people. He'd even knock on doors, and he would witness for Jesus. And uh, that was uh, a days of early zeal as a new believer. And then he got drafted into World War One, and. Uh, When he got into the war, he saw things that he'd never seen before. He had been in some sense protected as a Highlander and uh, hadn't seen the wickedness of humanity, but now he was seeing it. And uh, he was around it. And perhaps in some cases in it. And then in one battle, he was severely wounded, cast to the ground. And uh, while there, a line on the field, wounded, in agony of pain, uh, there were some Canadian uh, soldiers that were uh, uh, a part of a cavalry, and they made another charge uh, against the enemy. And as they did, one of the Canadians' horses, uh, the hoof, hit Duncan Campbell's body as he was lying on the ground, and he yelled. <laughs> I think I would too. And the Canadian soldier recognized that Soldier is alive. And so after the charge, he came back and picked Duncan Campbell up. Uh, Duncan Campbell said he thought he was dying. uh, But he put Duncan Campbell on the back of his horse. And uh, began to uh, head toward the clearing station so he could get some medical help. And uh, Duncan Campbell said he thought he was going to die on the back of that horse. And he knew he was ready to die in the sense that he was saved. He was on his way to heaven. But oh, in these last months there in the military, uh, he had uh, uh, been exposed to the wickedness of his own heart. And he grieved that he would have to meet God. And, and uh, yes, he saved, but oh, he hadn't, hadn't, uh, hadn't been living in victory. And, and he, he began to pray a prayer that he heard his father pray. 
It was a prayer that uh, his father had learned from Robert Murray McShane. Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. And over and over again, he prayed that prayer. Oh, God, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. And he said, there on the back of that horse, the Spirit of God met with him. (laughs) Met with him so powerfully that as he was, you know, there confessing his wickedness and the need for God's holiness, the blood of Jesus was applied in that First John 1 sense and uh, cleansed him. And he said he felt as pure as an angel. <laughs> That's what the blood of Jesus does. When you get honest with God about your sin, when you come all the way clean and there's no excuses and no uh, trying to justify, the blood of Jesus rushes in like a tsunami and just washes all the debris away. And he began to rejoice in the Lord. And so powerful was his rejoicing that by the time he got to the clearinghouse, he was now singing Psalm 103 in Gaelic. You know, from the Scottish Psalter. And he's singing away. And the presence of God was all over him. Now the Canadian soldiers didn't understand Gaelic. (laughs) But the presence of God is a universal language. And as a result of this meeting with God. And his singing and bringing in a sense as a vessel By the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God to those other soldiers, seven Canadians trusted Christ. (laughs) Duncan Campbell later referred to this experience as a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. He said, call it what you want to. I call it a baptism. And then he would hit the pulpit. (laughs) That's how he did it. It also taught him the power of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as seven Canadians were saved. As a result of an awareness of the presence of God. Well he came back to Scotland. His wounds healed. And uh, he grew in the Lord. Went to the faith mission. Was under John George Govan. Became a pilgrim himself. And was used all over Scotland. And uh, uh, God blessed him. He was involved in some revivals in various places. And uh, he married. Had children. And it became difficult in his itineracy. To be able to continue on that way. And so uh, uh, he... uh, Uh, sensed that perhaps he should leave the road, and so he resigned from the faith mission. He took a pastorate on the island of Skye, and for 17 years he pastored. But he said in his own soul something was missing. He said he referred to them really as as fruitless and barren years. And though he would go and speak at conferences and talk about the revivals he'd been in, uh, uh, he'd even preached at the great Keswick Convention, uh, there was no more power of it in his own life. And one day his own daughter Shona asked him, What happened? Where's the power that you once knew? (laughs) What a question. And it grieved his heart. And he went into his study that night. And he knew he had to have another meeting with God. And there in his study, he got on his face. God, what's wrong? I don't know the power that I used to know. I don't see you work like I used to see. God, where are the revivals? Lord, it's been dry. What's wrong, Lord? 17 years. And his daughter came in there in the middle of the night as he was just in that agony of soul uh, lying prostrate there on the floor. And she, she got down next to him and she said, Go through with God, Daddy. <laughs> Good daughter. And God met with Duncan Campbell again. And the Spirit of God came rushing into that room. And the blood of Jesus was applied. And his unbelief and barrenness was cleansed away. And uh, uh, that next day, he was a changed man. He refers to this experience as a mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. Ah, it happened more than once. That's interesting. (laughs) It was a few days or a few weeks later... That he received the invitation to the island of Lewis. And uh, making a long story short. He went in December of 1949. For what he thought was going to be a 10 day meeting. But God so moved. He preached all across that island for the next three years. Preaching in the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now what is all that? 
Is that just for Duncan Campbells? Is that for non-preachers? Is it for ladies? (laughs) What is it? And friends, whatever it is, are we availing ourselves of this mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit? Now, let's take some time to answer what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how do you avail yourself of it? What we need to do here is investigate every passage that deals with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to do that in summary form this morning. Again, the details are in the book, The Revived Life, in chapter 8, that go into every text, uh, really in uh, some uh, detail. Uh, But by investigating these passages, we can find the answers answers to these questions. Now, let me immediately, uh, from the start here, distinguish between water baptism and spirit baptism. Sometimes there's debate over what passages are dealing with what. I do not think there needs to be that debate. Here's why. It's easy to tell what's water baptism and what's spirit baptism. There's two ways. If the person doing the baptism is a human, (laughs) then it's not spirit baptism. And if the element being baptized into is water, physical water, (laughs) then it's not spirit baptism. No, if it's a human doing the baptism, uh, baptizing, and if the element being baptized into is water, then it's water baptism. (laughs) But if the person doing the baptizing is deity, and if the element being baptized into is deity, then it's spirit baptism. And those are the passages that give us the answers to our questions. So, let's start with what it is, and deal with what I'm going to call the provision, key word, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll look to how to access it, and how to experience that provision. First of all, the provision. We have some key concepts here. And uh, uh, behind me, you've uh, got a chart. We've got the top of the chart already there. Uh, uh, When we deal with this, I want us to note two key concepts. Two key concepts. The first key concept is that it's one baptism with two directions. All right? We're dealing with one baptism. But we do need to understand that that one baptism has two directions. Ephesians 4 verse 5 says there's one baptism. And yet we know in passage after passage of scripture that sometimes it says baptized into, there's one direction. Other times it says baptized with, ah, there's another direction. Now let me just give you an analogy here before we dive into the spiritual truth of it all. If you take a sponge and you baptize it into water, you immerse it into water, at the same time it's inundated with the water as the water moves into it. And we're going to see that there is a baptism into deity and at the same time you're inundated with deity as deity moves into you. We'll give the details of that in a moment, but a sponge is a beautiful illustration for us. The big point is that spirit baptism is the big deal, and water baptism pictures it. We know this because of the words of John the Baptist in uh, passages like Mark 1 verse 8, where he said, I baptize you with water, but there comes one after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Letting us know that there's one baptism, it's spirit baptism, and water baptism pictures it. Now, spirit baptism is one baptism with two directions. The first direction is being baptized by the Spirit into Christ. The second direction is that in the same uh, event, you're baptized by the Son with the Spirit. Now, let's just go over this briefly. First of all, you're baptized by the Spirit into Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Our text, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Romans 6, 3 through 5. Colossians 2, 12 are the four passages that give us the details of these two directions. Now, without going into the proof of all this, let me give you the highlights of what those details teach us. In those four passages, we learn that the agent 
Who baptizes is the Holy Spirit. The ones being baptized are believers. The element into which believers are baptized is Christ. The means of the baptism is faith. The timing of the baptism as a matter of fact is the transaction of faith for salvation. And the significance of this direction of spirit baptism is that believers are identified, now here it is, in Christ, in his death and resurrection. Now we could spend (laughs) a huge amount of time on what I just highlighted. But what I want us to see is that there is a first direction here. Spirit baptism, the Holy Spirit immerses you, he places you, he baptizes you into Christ. You're identified at that point in Christ. It's what we noted the other night in Galatians 2.20, that you're placed into Christ, therefore his history, therefore his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement, all of that is a part of union with Christ, and it occurs when you're baptized into Christ. And we learn in these texts of Scripture that as a matter of fact, now you're going to hear me distinguish later, there's a matter of function. But as a matter of fact, this occurred the moment you believed on Jesus as your Savior. At that very moment, the Spirit baptized you into Christ as a matter of fact. As a matter of provision, even if you're not experiencing it right now. (laughs) We'll come to the function. But, as a matter of fact, this is so. Now, this union with Christ in his resurrection life introduces the second direction. As you can see on the chart here, the same time the Spirit places you into or baptizes you into Christ, the Son baptizes you with the Spirit. So here's the second direction. Just as a sponge is baptized into the water, and in so doing, it's inundated with the water as the water moves into the sponge. In the same way, uh, there is this reality that when you're baptized into Christ, you're inundated with Christ. There's that with the Spirit part of it as the Spirit of Jesus moves into you. Now the passages that unfold this for us are Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, John 1.33, Acts 1.5, 1, Acts 11.16, 1 Corinthians 12.13, and our text, Galatians 3.26 and 27. That's the passages that teach us about this part of it. Now let me give you the highlights here. Here the agent who baptizes is Christ. On the first direction it was the Spirit. Here it's Christ. Again, the ones being baptized are believers, so that's the same. Here, the description of what believers are baptized with is the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's a beautiful study in these texts that I just mentioned. Again, the means of the baptism is faith. That's the same. The timing of this direction as a matter of fact is the transaction of faith for salvation. So that's the same. And so here's the point. When believers are baptized into Christ, at the same time they are baptized with the Spirit as a matter of fact. Now again, we're going to get to the matter of function, the experience of the facts. But the provision is there. The moment you trusted Christ, at that moment, you experienced this Spirit baptism as the Spirit baptized you into Christ, and Christ baptized you with the Spirit, that occurred for everyone here today who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Now the two directions of this is very, very important because this is where a lot of the mix-up comes. Moody, Tory, and Rice were focusing on the second direction, baptized with the Spirit, because that's the power of the Spirit that we need for service. When the modern textbooks are emphasizing the first direction of the baptism, that when you're saved, you're placed into Christ. And the text that they always use is 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one Spirit are you all baptized into one body. And they stop there. 
But I remember when I was in India uh, in January 2000, I was reading James Stewart's book, Heaven's Throne Gift, and he pointed out that there are the two directions, and then I began to see it right in the text in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, uh, after it says, for by one spirit are you all baptized into one body, the last statement of that verse says, and are made to drink one spirit. And the preposition is there that in the other passages is translated with one spirit. You have it right in our text here. For as many of you as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And I'll explain more of that text here in a moment. So the first key concept is that there is one baptism with two directions. Second key concept when we deal with provision. The two directions reveal two provisions. The first of those two provisions is a new position. We're going to come and deal with this in detail. The second of the provisions, tying in with the end of Christ and with the Spirit, is a new power. (laughs) Now... This is glorious. Let's talk first of all about the believer in Christ. This is a result of being baptized by the Spirit into Christ. And thus the arrow going upward as you're uh, baptized into Christ. So this is what we call you or the believer in Christ. This is your new position. You are identified, that's a key word, in Christ. Now the in Christ phrases, in Christ, in him, and so on, occur at least, depending on how you uh, uh, count the various uh, synonymous phrases, at least 242 times in the New Testament. 216 of those in in the epistles. That is a remarkable emphasis. There's a greater emphasis about you being in Christ than there is about Christ being in you. And we kind of focus on the Christ in you because it really is a powerful truth. That's what we dealt with the other night in Galatians 2.20. But apparently there's something God wants us to get here. As he emphasizes 242 times in our New Testament, 216 times in the instructional books called the epistles, that you are in Christ. You have been baptized into Christ. Now, this new provision uh, is a provision. uh, I hate to use this word because how it's misused today or used in other ways in our day. But it is a position that entitles you to divine authority. You see, when you got placed into Christ, you got placed into his death, his resurrection, and his enthronement. We read in Ephesians 1 that God displayed his mighty power when he raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Okay, so Christ sits at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Throne indicates authority. And friends, when you got saved, you were placed in him, which means you're there. Now, don't misunderstand that. It's not figurative. It's literal. It's just that it's spiritual, not physical. In the spiritual realm, there's a physical realm, there's a spiritual realm. Physically, we're right here in Tala, Dublin, Ireland. But spiritually, we're there. The spirit realm does not know the geographical boundaries of the physical realm. So literally, not figuratively, literally, you're in him. And we're told that he sits far above, not just above, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, and we're in him. And according to Ephesians 2, 6, we're raised with Christ and we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. There it is. We're there. It says so. And so this is a tremendous provision that entitles us to divine authority over the powers of darkness defensively to protect us against the fiery darts. In other words, there are temptations that hit us in our emotions. You ever get in a bad mood and you can't figure out why? Okay, it's a fiery dart. 
Now, sometimes we get in a bad mood. Uh, in that scenario, you know exactly why. This has happened, this has happened. Now, it's still a sin to get discouraged, but you can figure out why. But there are times when that, 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 that just emotion, that darkness just overwhelms us, and you can't figure out why. That's a fiery dart. How about when you have thoughts that hit your mind and you're thinking, where did that come from? You ever have that happen? <laughs> That's a fiery dart. Now, when a thought hits you because you see a picture or you hear something or you smell something, okay, then you, that's physical. But when a thought hits you and you think, where in the world did that come from? That's a fiery dart. Okay, now point is, your position in Christ entitles you to divine authority over the powers of darkness and as a matter of defense, that can protect you through the shield of faith against the fiery darts of the wicked one. We'll say more later when we get to function of the facts. Offensively, this authority... This position of the throne in Christ uh, can give us the provision, does give us the provision to pull down the strongholds of satanic lies that hinder people from seeing the glorious light of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 10, 3-5. So in summary, in Christ, believers possess delegated authority to counterattack and overrule a defeated foe. That's the first provision based on the first direction. The second provision is a new power based on the second direction. By the Son with the Spirit, this is a new power. And let's talk about this for a second. This deals with Christ in you. As the new position identified you in Christ, the new power invests you with the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit moved in when you were born again to impart, to impart to you the victorious life of Christ, as we saw the other night in Galatians 2.20. You have been invested with, you have been clothed with this power of the Spirit. Thus, this new provision is a matter of endowment. I'm going to prove that exegetically here in a moment. Uh, the position is that you're entitled to divine authority. The power is that you're endued with divine ability. Now, let's just talk about this for a second. This is wonderful truth. In Acts 1.5, uh, right before Jesus ascended, he told those disciples, you need to wait for the promise of the Father and here's how you're going to know it when it comes. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, quick grammatical point. When the definite article the precedes a proper name, it emphasizes the person. When the definite article the is absent before a proper name, it emphasizes the quality or power of the person. Now, in the English, the the is always there. So this gets confusing to us at times. Uh, and it needs to be there because in English it would sound funny without it. But in Acts 1.5, the the is absent. So what Jesus is saying, look, you need to wait for the promise. Here's how you're going to know it when it comes. You will be baptized. You will be immersed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you have a parallel text in Luke 24. Again, before Jesus ascends, he tells his disciples to wait. Okay, so this is just, it's the same scenario. Uh, uh, one's in Acts, one's in Luke. Both are the writer, the, uh, uh, Luke. And uh, so, uh, but in Luke 24, it's worded this way. Jesus says, wait, you are to tarry, that's the word he uses there, in Jerusalem until... You are endued with power from on high. Now, wait a second. Do you get it? In Acts, it says, wait for the promise. Here's how you know it when it comes. You'll be baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. In Luke, he says, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. Wait for the promise. Here's how you know when it comes. You'll be endued with power from on high. That lets us know that baptized with, okay, not baptized in. Strictly the second half of the baptism, the baptized with, is exactly parallel to being endued with power from on high. Baptized with the quality of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, endued with power from on high. Same truth. Do you see that? <laughs> All right, I think it's time for a cup of tea. <laughs> 
I won't repeat it for time's sake. <laughs> but it's true. Now, here's the deal. The word endued means to be clothed with, to be invested with. And our text says in verse 27, for as many of you has been baptized into, there's first direction, have, been, have put on Christ. See the words have put on? You know what Greek words behind that? Endued. It's the same word from Luke 24 when Jesus said, wait for the promise. Here's how you know it when it comes. You'll be endued with, clothed with, put on. You'll be endued with power from on high, which is parallel to being baptized with the quality or power of the Holy Spirit. So let's read it this way. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized with Christ. So we have the two directions right in our text, beautifully articulated. Now, this new position and this new power unfold for us some, uh, some details. We already saw a moment ago that under the position uh, dealing with you in Christ, you're entitled to divine authority as a matter of defense against the fiery darts of the enemy, uh, Ephesians 1, 2, and 6, and as a matter of offense to pull down the mighty strongholds uh, of the enemy and uh, to do so with divine authority, as we saw from Second uh, Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Now, when it comes to the second direction, the baptized with, the endued with, this divine ability, there are... Three um, manifestations, three categories of provision here. A little small, but I think uh, we can uh, uh, do this. First of all, included is the anointing of understanding. Now, when you read various writers, sometimes they'll choose a word they like, and they'll take like the word anointing, and they'll refer to the whole gamut of being baptized with, with that one word. But technically, it's one of three categories, and this is why you have so much confusion of terms. Uh, but when we begin to see the umbrella effect of one baptism, two directions, into Christ with the Spirit, uh, you in Christ, Christ in you, divine authority, divine ability, under the divine ability, the first divine enabling is the anointing of of understanding, which has to do with spiritual illumination. We know this from 1 John 2.20. But you have, present tense, are having, not will have, so it's not out there, it's right here, you already got it if you're saved. You have an unction, that's the word anointing, from the Holy One, and ye know, Ah, all things. That lets us know that this anointing has to deal with knowing. You have an anointing and you know all things. Look, if you're saved here today, this is true for you. Say, so why am I not experiencing it? We'll get to that. <laughs> but before you can ever experience it, you've got to be convinced you got it. That's called reckoning in Romans 6, 11. Uh, so this has to deal with knowing. It's the anointing of understanding regarding the truth of God, which endues you, endue, there's your umbrella for these categories, uh, uh, to get to service, which is the third category that we're going to see. So the anointing gives us understanding of truth so that we can get to service and proclaim it. Uh, what a wonderful provision here. Uh, it has to do with the illumination of truth so that you're invigorated by that truth. All of a sudden that truth comes alive to you now. Isn't it a whole lot easier to declare the gospel when it's alive to you? <laughs> okay, so any, any part of the word of God, when it comes alive to us, now we can speak it with power. And you can even jumble it all up and this and that and not be that smooth from an oratory standpoint. But if the truth is out there, there's power when there's the endowment that is this anointing, this enabling. To know truth. Jesus said in Luke 4.18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me. Alright. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Baptized with. Because the Lord has anointed me. To ultimately preach. Alright. So the anointing of understanding. Is not so that we can get it all in our head. And never tell anybody. It's to get us to service. But service without this anointing. Is anemic. So this is crucial. It's the enabling for knowing truth so you can speak it. Samuel Chadwick. What a story. He wrote the book called The Way of Pentecost. Uh, he was an old time Methodist years ago. Saved as a child. 
uh, very poverty-stricken home. He was poor. He was uneducated. So what he would do as a boy, he would work 12-hour shifts to help put food on the table with a, uh, for the family. And then he'd come home and he would pray and study his Bible for five hours. Daily. 12-hour shifts, come home, five hours in the Word of God. That was his Bible education. So that by age 21, he became a pastor. <laughs> and uh, as a pastor, he worked hard at his sermons. He had studied homiletics and how to prepare a sermon, you know, and frame it and all that stuff, you know. And uh, he worked hard to deliver uh, the best sermons that he possibly could to his people. But he focused more on the sermons than he did the people. <laughs> And after seven years, he realized he was a defeated pastor. His people were not helped. People were not getting saved. Something was desperately wrong. And he began to hunger, God, what's wrong? <laughs> you see, that's where the whole revival journey starts. God, there's something missing. There's got to be more. That's where he was. And then he heard about some people who were revived through an experience of the Holy Spirit. And so he himself got under conviction. That's what I need. And as he began to seek God for that experience of the Holy Spirit, there came that night there in his study before the fire that God revealed to him the arrogance, the pride of thinking that he could do the work of God by polished sermons. That he could do the work of God in helping people by focusing on the sermons and not the people. <laughs> and God convicted him of the pride and all the wrong way of thinking and all the self-dependence. And there, before that fire, he repented of that arrogant pride and self-will and self-dependence. And uh, uh, in his case, the Spirit of God so convicted, he gathered up all those sermons. And this is big for a preacher. And he threw them into the fire. I'm not telling anybody to do that. <laughs> That's what the Holy Spirit told him to do. And immediately, there was a release. <laughs> the Spirit fell upon him. He words it this way. There came upon me a deep peace, a thrilling joy, a new sense of power. Ah, my mind was quickened. There was a new faculty of understanding. There's the anointing. Every power was vitalized. The tide turned. The next time he preached, seven people got saved. He said, one for every barren year. <laughs> and the church soon was enveloped in a mighty revival. Why? Because he experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he's a classic example that brings up and points up the anointing part of it. As his mind was quickened and a new faculty of understanding. That brings us to the second uh, part of the endowment. And that is the filling for holiness. Here it uh, goes beyond the illumination of the mind to the infusion of the holy life into your personality. This would be what we talked about the other night with Galatians 2.20. Where the life of Christ in you by the Holy Spirit is imparted to you, to your soul, to your very body. And you are now animated and energized by the divine life of Christ in you. This is the Spirit imparting to you the holy life of Jesus. That's the Spirit-filled life for holiness. Here the enablement goes beyond knowing truth to living truth. Goes beyond that illumination that invigorates you with truth now to the experience of truth personified as the life of Jesus fills you. Now, if I had time, I could give you story after story after, uh, of men and women just like us here today who've tapped into this. In recent years, as they understood, oh, I can't do this Christian life thing. I've got to access Christ, the Christian life, because he's the only one that can live it. <laughs> and they become filled with his life. That's holiness. That brings us to the third category under the endowment, and that's the overflowing for service. Here... Going beyond the anointing and the filling, the communicating capacities of an individual are liberated to testify. 
As the Spirit now imparts Christ's life, not just to you, but actually through you, out to others. Here the enabling is beyond knowing truth, beyond living truth, to now the enabling for speaking truth. I remember Charlie Kittrell, whom I've uh, said much about here in former conferences, telling me that years before when he was in college, he was at Bob Jones, and uh, he said that he, uh, he, you know, he would witness and he would work, but not a whole lot to show for it, and he was, uh, he was seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he said one day he was walking across the campus and they have a bridge that they call the Bridge of Nations where uh, it's a big, huge fountain. This bridge goes across it and they have all the flags of the nations. And so he was walking across that and he said the Spirit of God came upon him. And he had to run into what's called the alumni building, one of the big class buildings, three stories. And he went to the third story and found a room that had no class in it. And there he said the Spirit of God... <laughs> came upon him to the point that physically he had to ask God to stay his hand. Now, not everybody has the dramatics of that. So don't get hung up on that, on that part. That's what happened to him. Here's the part that you've got to get hung up on. <laughs> he was now empowered to witness. He said he'd just go witness and people get saved. He'd go witness again people get saved. I mean, like 15 <laughs> uh, uh, in a weekend. I mean, just... He was, his capacities for speaking the gospel were now thoroughly energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Glorious. So the summary of the endowment, the second direction of the baptism, is that knowing truth, living truth, and speaking truth, this endowment is ultimately for service, so that with the Spirit, second direction, believers have access to divine ability to counteract and overcome the world and the flesh. There's the stay in the basket concept that we might engage in empowered service. Now, since the Spirit imparts the knowledge of Christ, the holiness of Christ, and the service of Christ, then the endowment is ultimately a revelation of Jesus. When you read Duncan Campbell's biography, they quote him as saying, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is essentially a revelation of Jesus Christ. Think of that. Because... When your faculties are anointed to understand this word, and Jesus is called the word. When the life of Jesus is imparted to you, and you experience his holiness, and through you so that people are impacted by his life, all of that is a revelation of Jesus. And so I agree with his definition. It's a revelation of Christ. So let's summarize the baptism Let's summarize the provision of the baptism. It's one baptism, two directions. The directions are, first of all, into Christ. By the Spirit, you've been placed into Christ. And the Son, Christ, place, uh, baptizes you with the Spirit. Those two directions then reveal two provisions. Uh, the first uh, of these is this new position, you're in Christ, that entitles you to divine authority, defensively and offensively, and then you have a new power. This is the second direction with the Spirit, Christ in you, where you've been endued, clothed with His divine life, His divine ability to understand, to experience His holy life, so that you can have powerful service. That provision is true for everyone here tonight, or today, who's saved. It's all Already there. Well, that brings up a question. Why am I not experiencing it? <laughs> Perhaps some would cry out. So let's quickly move to the access. So that we can experience or live the provision. Romans 5.2 puts it this way. In whom? In Christ. We have access, here it is, by faith. Ah, there's that word again. Into this grace wherein we stand. Ah, so the access is by faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please him. Now, a carpenter who is skilled uh, can be given all of the latest tools for carpentry. He possesses them. But if he doesn't depend on them as he uses them, he doesn't benefit. We have been given the tools. But if we don't depend on them, if we don't access by faith what we've been given, then we miss out. Let's take the divine authority, the in Christ uh, provision. Defensively, 
based on our position in Christ at the throne, according to Ephesians 6, we can lift up the shield of faith, which we're told quenches. It doesn't just deflect. It puts out all the fiery darts of the wicked one. You say, well, spell that out for me how it works in a given situation. Okay, here you are, and all of a sudden you realize you're in a bad mood, and you're thinking, okay, why am I in this bad mood? Nobody said anything to aggravate me. Nobody uh, provoked me. Why am I in this bad mood? Oh, this is a fiery dart. So how do you lift up the shield of faith? Two steps of faith. First of all, take your provision. You can say it this way. It's not a matter of wording. It's no mantra. It's just the truth that matters here. I claim my position in Christ. See, that's taking the provision. And I reject this mood. That's acting on it. So there's a take step and there's an act step. And you take, you claim your position in Christ. I reject this mood. I reject this fiery dart. What that is, is lifting up the shield of faith. And immediately that fiery dart is gone and your spirit lifts. Hallelujah. Just try it. (laughs) It is marvelous, wonderful provision. Here's this thought process that comes rolling across your brain. And you're thinking, where did that come from? Oh, wait a second. That's a fiery dart. I claim my position in Christ. See, that's taking. I reject that thought process. That's acting on it. You're lifting up the shield of faith. You're submitting yourself, therefore, to God. You're resisting the devil, and he has to flee because that shield of faith quenches the fiery dart, and you're free. Your mind is clear, and you can focus again. Don't you think we need this? See, that's a part of the baptism, but you've got to access it. This is the in Christ part of it. This authority over the enemy part of it. We've got to access it. But not just defensively. Offensively as well. Defensively we got the shield of faith. Offensively we have the weapon of faith. And again, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. I was in a meeting where there was a Christian school. So during the day I was preaching in the Christian school. They had a girl that had recently moved from uh, the country of Russia. So this was all new in the United States. And this was down in the Atlanta era, area uh, there, not too far from where uh, Brother Miles is at. And uh, uh, this girl, she, she was full of questions. So I'd be preaching away in chapel. She was on the front row and she's raising her hand asking questions. All the other kids were laughing because you're not supposed to raise your hand and ask questions during the sermon. But she didn't know any better. And they were all behind her so she couldn't see them laughing. So I'd, answer, I'd call on her and she'd ask her questions. I'd answer. And then we'd go on with the sermon. <laughs> Well, about the third day, we were dealing with the gospel. She raised her hand saying, I need to get saved. So I sat down with her, her teacher, her dear lady, and school principal were close by. And I walked through the gospel. Man, she was right with me. And I was being detailed because I knew from her background, she, I couldn't assume anything. So I'm walking through the gospel as clear as I knew how by God's grace. And uh, we got to what I call the invitation part of it. Uh, and uh, and uh, um, she got weird. Her face got weird. Uh, All of this eager countenance was gone, and there was kind of a fear on her countenance now, and she kept going like this. She said, uh, I feel something wrong, and I don't know much about this. I do know that in the occult world, they try to switch the brain center, the headquarters from the top of the spine, which is the bottom of the brain where it's supposed to be, to the bottom of the spine. I don't understand any of that, but when she went like this, I recognized, okay, we've got a spiritual war going on right in front of us. And I said, uh, do you mind if I pray? She was coherent enough to say, that's okay. Now, friends, I'm nothing, but I'm going to tell you, Jesus is everything. And I just simply went to the Lord and said, Lord, I claim my position in you. Okay, there's taking. And I exercise your authority over the powers of darkness that are seeking to hinder this girl right now from getting saved. That's acting on it. When I said amen... She was clear. Her countenance was normal again. Are you willing to trust Christ? Yes. (laughs) And she went on to pray to trust the Lord. You see, what a tremendous provision, both defensively and offensively. By faith, we can access divine authority. And then secondly, the divine ability part of it, uh, uh, faith again turns the provision into experience. You see, faith is what turns the facts that we already have into function. Now, this is fascinating. Do you notice in our text it says, if you've been baptized into Christ, you have put on, you have been endued, you've been baptized with Christ? Then why does Romans 13, 14 command, put you on the Lord Jesus Christ? 
if Galatians tells us in the indicative mood, to get technical here for a second, which means it's already happened, you've already put on Christ, why does Romans in the imperative mood command us to put on Christ? It's because you already got the facts, but you've got to access them, or you miss out. There it is. And so, uh, that's what turns the facts into function. It's what the old-timers called experimental religion. It wasn't that they were testing something, experimenting to see if it was so, but to demonstrate that it was. That's what we're talking about. And uh, sometimes this has been called a second blessing. And there's all sorts of controversy that comes over that. Uh, But it's really not a second blessing. If we understand you already got the facts, but you're accessing them by faith, then it's not a second blessing. It's just an access of the first blessing. And you can do that over and over and over again. So that's a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth. But uh, at any rate, a thousandth and so on. But you get my point. You got it, but you got to access it. And when you do, (laughs) things change. So... Who's right, Moody, Torty, Rice, or the modern textbooks? Both. You have been baptized into Christ. You have been baptized with the Spirit, but you've got to access it by faith. How about the anointing? It says we have an unction. It says you already got this anointing. So do you need to ask for it? If you already have it. Do you? No. But it is by faith, so if he's giving it, what do you got to do? Take it. God, I've got to teach this Sunday school class. God, this is, going to be, this, is going to be a, this is going to be a joke, Lord, if you don't show up. Now, God, you said I have an anointing. I'm trying to prepare this lesson. God, I am taking what you've given. See, that's a, that's a transaction. And as you go forward, you find that there's an illumination. What's a wonderful thing is you're speaking. There are many, many times, not just in the study ahead of time, but even as you're speaking where God puts truth together right as it's coming out of your mouth. Then you've got to go back later and write it down in your notes so you can't, don't forget it for the next time. <laughs> How about the filling? That's what we already saw, Galatians 2.20. Take Christ in you. Act on it. And you have his patience, his purity, his love. Remember that? Here's the face of temptation. You can say, thank you, Lord, for your life. That's taking. And you act on it. And you experience his patience, his purity, his love, and so on. That's the filling. How about the overflow? This one's different. This is the only one that's not stated in the present tense. It's in the future tense. So in this case, you are to ask for it. John 7, uh, 37 through 39. Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall, there's your promise, the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit, there's the same idea, the quality of the Spirit, to them that ask Him. So here, you must start with asking. God, I need your power. Lord, I'm going to go witness to so-and-so. Uh, Lord, I'm burdened to talk to so-and-so at the break today at, at, at work. Or, God, I've got the Sunday school class. Or uh, whatever the case, uh, Lord, I'm going to be at this family reunion. I need, to be, I need to be a good witness for you. I don't want to be in the flesh. I don't want to be brazen. I don't want to push in the flesh. I want to be sensitive to you. But, God, if you open the door and you t- uh, lead me to speak, God, I've got to have your power. God, I'm asking! <laughs> now, you can do that and I can do that. Why? Because that's faith. And faith is not a work. It's the one thing we can do. We can say, God, I can't do it. I need you. And so we ask, and the Spirit will bear witness with your spirit. You got it! And it just went from shall be to is. So now you can stop asking and start taking. And say thank you, because it's that real. And then you can act on it. And as you speak, whether you feel anything or not, there will be a power from heaven that makes the difference. What a glorious provision. It's what Acts 2.38 is talking about. When those people were under conviction on the day of Pentecost, they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent. That's getting saved. And then he says, and take the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ah. It's a beautiful passage. He says, repent. Change your thinking. Trust Jesus to save you. That's how you receive the remission of sins. And then he says, get baptized. Why? Because water baptism pictures spirit baptism. And so he then says, and therefore, based on the picture, take, receive. The word receive is not be given. It means take. Take the gift of the Holy Spirit. Don't you think it would make a difference if we teach new converts that when they get baptized, it pictures spirit baptism. And the big deal is learn to start taking what you got. What a radical difference that would make to new converts. That is what it says in Acts 2.38. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of, is a baptism into Christ and with the Spirit. Now Moody's story uh, 
is quite dramatic. As the Spirit of God comes on him as he's walking on the street in New York City, he'd been seeking for some time, and he had to ask God to stay his hand. Walter Wilson's story, there's no such detail. There's no description of waves coming over him or any of that. But in both scenarios, they went from very little fruit to much fruit. That's the point. Don't seek the experience of a given scenario. Seek the truth. And let God play it out like he wants to. The bottom line is, this is what we've got to have for much fruit. And in closing, let me say this. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but there's come one after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But in two of the accounts, in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, in two of those accounts, in Matthew and in Luke, he adds two words. He says, he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, fire is a beautiful, descriptive word. There's much that could be said, but fire purifies. You see, the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, uh, is something we need. But if we're going to live a life of caving into the flesh then we miss out. And so the whole idea is, no, that's got to be purged away. And so Hebrews 12 says, our God is a consuming fire. And when you go to God and say, this is my need, God, I've got to have you. Part of what he'll do is saying, well, this has got to go, and this has got to go. Give this up. And the fire of the Spirit comes and purges you as the blood of Jesus cleanses you. But not only does fire purify, it impassions. Fire is one of those words that represents passion. And there's something about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that ignites us. That impassions us. And friends, don't we need that? So that it's not just this dull. Oh, it's amazing when there's one person in the assembly who's passionate about Jesus. It ignites. Fire ignites more fires. And so John George Govan Later of the faith mission, God used him to train Duncan Campbell. He said he would often pray for a fresh baptism. And when you understand, okay, what he means is I've got the provision, but I need a new access. Makes all the sense in the world. Will you and I avail ourselves of the mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit? Lord, we thank you for truth. We thank you for its liberation possibility. Lord, I pray that we would grab a hold of the mighty baptism of the Holy Spirit. That you might grab a hold of us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.